So let's read Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So I'll, I'll go over that again. It's, this is real central to point out something that uh, is often not even considered. I mentioned last time that someone had said that to us after, at the end of a seminar when we kind of lost all of our friends. But though the fact is that God is the one who establishes the church, that God is the one who adds people to the church through conversion. God is the one who's inspired the inerrant authoritative teaching that's for the church. And God is the one who's promised to use that teaching and his ordained means of grace to keep those who are his to feed and nourish those who are his and to make it possible for us to preach the gospel to others, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, to care for one another and to be preserved blameless until the day. Those things God does through what he's provided and he's always provided since the very days of the apostles. And the, the big lie is that something new that arises later in church history is going to improve on what God actually provided. And the new thing that I was talking about last week that, that arose in church history somewhere around 300 AD, according to even the people who believe that, is the institutional church. And it was interesting when I, I got a document through Logo Software that came from Abraham Kuyper, who, when I met Rick Warren, claimed that he was a follower of Abraham Kuyper. He called himself a Kuyper Calvinist, not a hyper Calvinist. You know his slogans. Well, Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch Reformed person from obviously the Netherlands, at the time, I think in about 1870, he wrote this sermon, the downgrade, the modernist, and so on. And so he was talking about what he called the church being both organic and institutional. And his proof for that was a passage in Ephesians that had nothing to do with it, rooted and grounded, which are just two ways of saying the same thing. But he took that one meaning, the organic church, the other meaning, the institutional church. But then in that same sermon, Abraham Kuyper, in 1870 or thereabouts, said the institutional church didn't exist until several centuries after the apostles. So in his way of thinking, rooted and grounded, one of those two terms, meant the institutional church that didn't exist at the time Paul wrote that passage in Ephesians. But he was talking to his buddies, the Reformed Calvinists in the Netherlands that believed that the church and state should kind of be one and the same, or at least strongly integrated. And so nobody's going to hold him in account to how he uses scripture. And the idea that the church and the government are going to create a Christianized society that's going to gradually bring about the kingdom of God 
was certainly Abraham Kuyper's idea, and it was Rick Warren's idea. But he, which I thought was amazing, said that the institutional church didn't exist during the time of the apostles. So why would you come up with the institutional church when you admit it doesn't exist during the time of the apostles? Well, the way they come up with it is by replacement theology. Because Israel, according to their definition, is an institution. Israel had a civil government attached to it, revealed by God. The, the Mosaic Covenant included all the things that they'd be looking for. And therefore, the assumption is the church, which was born on the day of Pentecost, is eventually going to go out through the whole world and become the new institution replacing Israel, and that gradually the kingdom of God will develop through both the power of the gospel wedded with the institutions that are necessary for society to run. And that was Kuiper's idea, endorsed by Rick Warren, and it is being promoted strongly by some Calvinist slash reform folks nowadays, including a guy who's very strong in the homeschool movement by the name of Doug Wilson. And you can look up his material. Before Doug Wilson, there were strong advocates such as Gary North, a guy by the name of, I think he was the son-in-law of Rush Dooney, and they had what's called theonomy, which is creating civil law from biblical principles and taking over the reins of government as much as possible and forcing everybody to obey the law of God as, as they perceived it. And they included details of the Mosaic Covenant that were considered seriously um, problematic back when I wrote about that. Yes. No, they call it the theonomy. They, they'd call it Christian, Christianized government. Theonomy. Theo plus namas for law. Theonomy. They would say that they wanted to reinstitute a capital punishment for rebellious teenagers was probably their most controversial idea. And they were going to rule the civil, civil government with an iron hand once they got into power. Now, there are ver many versions of this. But this was popular in the 80s and 90s when it came on my radar screen. And there was a lot that happened because when the charismatic renewal came into the limelight in the 80s, there was the idea, and this, they tried to do this. And I, I wrote about it sometime in the early 90s as well, but there was a guy in Georgia by the name of Earl Polk who was very popular in the charismatic movement and had a big, really big church called Harvester Church or something, somewhere in Georgia. And they had a conference where they brought in the theonomist people from the Dutch Reformed and other kind of reform. And then the 
charismatic version of dominionism. We're going to have so much power from God and do many, so many signs and wonders that the whole world will become Christianized. And they brought it all together in Georgia for a big conference. So they're going to try to get the two streams of dominionism together. But that blew up when there was a massive scandal with Polk and his son-in-law and moral problems and the whole thing kind of fizzled as far as the Polk part concerned. But the theonomy never went away. Fast forward, this is what I did all weekend. I read an entire book on this after called Invading Babylon, the Seven Mountain Mandate. Now, this is a resurrected version of the charismatic end of this. Doug Wilson is still out there with his thing. He's a younger version of teaching theonomy and the law, uh, Christianized version of the Mosaic Covenant. And now you have the charismatic version, which is really NAR. So this book, written by Bill Johnson from Redding, California, Lance Wall now, who I hadn't previously read, but I read every page of this and took notes on every page. Contributions from C. Peter Wagner, who is now deceased, but he's one of the big apostles. Patricia King, she's a charismatic prophetess. And then uh, this guy named Ahn, and so on. So anyhow, I read it, this entire book. Let me just say what's been the case all along. Jessica and I did this whole thing with uh, Dutch Sheets, who's in that same movement. There's no claim so outlandish, so grandiose, so self-serving that they won't make it. We're the ones the world's waiting for. We're the ones that are going to solve all the problems. And one of the chapters in there says, in order to do this, we need massive amounts of money. And they say that. And so see Peter Wagner was going to set up a system whereby tons of money could be given. And then he's going to have managers who can multiply the money because they know what to, how to do that. And they're going to take all this money and use it to do their new apostolic reformation to Christianize and bring the kingdom of God now. And they mock people like Eric and I. We're the idiots that actually think Christ is going to come for the church. And I saw that in some of the writings that I quoted in an article I wrote some years ago. They say this, uh, this guy, there's Warnock, who's now deceased, William Branham, now deceased. I think Ham Hammond is still around. He's got to be like 100. But they were saying that, that we're so naive to think that Jesus Christ is actually going to come for a disease-ridden, poverty-stricken, defeated church. That's what they say about us. Disease-ridden, poverty-stricken, defeated church. If you're going through the type of problems a lot of people do, you're defeated. That book here is a little cleanse from that sort of thing, but the implication is still there. Now, in this book that I read this weekend, almost every verse cited is from Matthew. Everyone, without exception, is misinterpreted and taken out of context. 
Supposedly the Lord's Prayer proves dominion theology. The Great Commission proves dominion theology. The parables prove dominion theology. And so the Christians are supposed to take dominion and force everybody one way or another, or entice them, theonomy force, N-A-R, entice, to be get on board with this. And that some of the people who are going to do this Christianizing don't really need to be Christians. They just need to be people of power and authority and great skill who will cooperate and make it happen. Now, let me tell you from my experience watching this since the 80s, I had friends that got into this and never got out of it. Some of the claims are in here, too, the new breed of man. Supposedly, there's a new breed of man that isn't like us. They were making that claim in the 80s. That's where I said, no. There's no new breed of man. That's absurd. But the point is this. Whatever version of it, I've noticed the popularity of it rises and falls with world history. So in the 80s, there was this big burst of enthusiasm when Reagan was president, and things were going very well. And so that's when this Earl Polk, Gary North, Bonson was another guy. They came to forefront. We're going to do this. We're going to get the Reformed and the Charismatic together and have one big kingdom of God push. But when that fell apart, some bad things that happened in history, then it gets resurrected in some other form. The new, new NAR never went away. They just keep pushing their agenda. 24-hour prayer services, fasting, fasting, fasting. And all of the prayer and fasting that's in this book is to the end that God would cause the kingdom to develop right here in history and the Christians would take over to worldly places of authority or influence them. So they're praying and fasting for something that's not even biblical. They're beating their heads against the wall, demanding that God do what they claim he should do. Yeah, he said that in there. They do lose a lot of weight, he said, but it, that wasn't the main point. Now, dear ones, I'm so motivated about this because I lost friends to these movements. I saw people get into that and never come out again. Yeah, family. They get into it, and they say, oh, your parents are pathetic, defeated Christians. They don't know what they're doing. They're never going to get the Holy Ghost. They're never going to do miracles. They're never going to establish the kingdom. Pathetic. That's what they look at us. We're utterly pathetic. And they'd be embarrassed to even be our friends. Dear ones, what they'll never do, and I can tell you this assuredly from 40 years of interacting with these folks, they will never do what we're doing. Teach the scripture verse by verse, taking everything in context, listening to people correct us if we get something out of context and learn the word of God and grow by the means that God's ordained. That doesn't happen because every verse is interpreted by special revelation. And you should see some of the stuff in here. I'm going to probably do podcasts on this. God told me this verse means, and then they caught some bizarre meaning that had nothing to do with what Matthew intended. So let me just go back to this. Look at Acts 2.32. Contrast. This is what Dave Hunt told us after he did that seminar 
back in the 80s on the seduction of Christianity to cover some of this stuff. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. In that context, if you look at that word for inheritance, kleromia, it's eternal. Our inheritance is not the wealth of the nations now. Those verses are cited from Revelation 21 that we're supposed to get it now. Our inheritance is assured because it is granted by God to those who have a lot or portion in the, this matter of what God has provided for all his sons and daughters. And our inheritance is spiritual, it's eternal, it's reserved in heaven, and it's guaranteed, and it will be manifest on earth later. Okay? We don't have to be wealthy now. We don't have to run some massive corporation or be in political power now. We have to believe the promises of God and be, have a, an inheritance, be part of it. So the things that God said through his apostle Paul that God's given to the church, they see, if you take it seriously, is utterly worthless. They don't say that, but you don't see, you're not going to see a, this, uh, what's the church in Reading with Bill Johnson? Bethel. Bethel. They, they have these meetings and meetings and meetings and shouting and screaming and calling down the Holy Ghost and doing all these things. Sound, careful Bible teaching that will build you up. Never find it. It might be somewhere, but I seriously doubt it. They'd rather fast until they can't even uh, keep their pants up than to study the Bible. Because they think they're going to force God to do what he said he'd never do. The church is in Israel. I don't care what they say. Okay, Rich, brother. Yeah, how are they doing now with Joe Biden in office? I mean, it ebbs and flows. Yeah, they can't this be was doing written good before now. that. This was written before that. Here, let me talk about how it rises and falls with American politics, or in some cases, British, because they've had parts of that over the years, too. When Biden, I don't know right now that it's awful, but it doesn't slow them down in their claims. When Trump was in office, then there was real influx of excitement. Patricia King wrote one of the chapters in here. And she's a charismatic prophetess. That's exactly what they're looking for. The influencers. According to, and the same goes to that Daryl Miller. I've got that red too, which is way thicker. We're supposed to be targeting the powerful and the influencers. The way to get this kingdom to really happen, you have to get an ear with the powerful, the wealthy the politically connected, and so on. And, and they, for a while, seemed to succeed in doing that. But it caused a lot of problems as, as far as the side effect of it, too. In some ways, I feel badly for some of these people, fairly new Christians. They, I, we have a video of them making decrees into the heavenlies about what must happen in America, because they believe that they have prophetic power over geopolitical entities and what will happen in them. And now, didn't you guys hear 
this Mormon guy is now going to redo the covenant with America? Yes. Do you want to talk about that? Other than I've heard Glenn Beck talk about that on his radio program. And again, Glenn Beck is someone I appreciate as far as politics goes, but when it comes to theology, it's an absolute disaster. He does believe that God had made a covenant with the United States. And the, the proof that that didn't happen is Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, where God made a covenant with one nation, that's Israel. Amen. And he now has the church that he's going to be filling up the kingdom of Israel with the citizenry. That's the purpose of the church is not to replace Israel, but to be the renewal of the people of God, to fill up the citizenry. They're going to be part of the glorious Amen. kingdom that's coming to Israel. That's the point. Yeah, so they, people they become it. citizens of the kingdom biblically, one person at a time through conversion. And when you're converted, you, be, you are given an inheritance. You're part of the kingdom. You're a child of the king, and you have an eternal promise. Now, this book... Invading Babylon mentions that's one way, but they want to have a massive thing where the whole group comes in. Examples are always from Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, so you get all, everybody at once. This one at a time is not going to produce the results they're looking for. Uh, get to the next slide, anyhow. We got, and then we'll we'll continue to talk about this inheritance, Clearomia. Ephesians 1.14, I have it here in my notes. Sorry, we, we just could not get the projector going. Ephesians 1.14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I did that whole section, Ephesians, beginning of Ephesians, which is the barakah, or blessing God for what he's done. So the, the inheritance... The pledge of our inheritance, which is yet future, is assured because of the finished work of Christ. How do we know that we have a future inheritance? How do we know that we'll participate in glory at the, when Christ establishes his kingdom? How do we know we're part of it? The pledge is given the Holy Spirit and the promises of God that come from Scripture. And the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, as he said, the pledge of our inheritance isn't dependent on the vicissitudes of human governments. It's not dependent on some grand, glorious uh, apostle project that comes up at the end of the age with flawed prophecies. It's dependent on what God did once for all. And any saint, no matter how ordinary you may be, no matter how lacking power and influence you may seem to be, how little importance you may seem to have, any saint, whoever that may be, has this pledge of the inheritance. And so in Acts 20, 32, give you the inheritance, build you up, give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Now, it doesn't say among those who have influence and power all over the world. Now, they cite in this book that I read, I'm charged up because I spent a whole weekend on this. <laughs> this book, they talk about, see, Paul did that. He went before kings. But they'd never tell you what he said when he was there. He never once got in front of Agrippa and said, 
We're going to turn your kingdom into the kingdom of God. You don't even have to be converted. You just got to cooperate with us. And we're going to feed all your widows and orphans and we're going to heal the sick. And you're going to have a better kingdom than you ever had. Let's just do that. No, no, read Acts again. He talked about redemption. I, I had a slide. I, I, I put it back in here and I was going to show it to you, but no projector. But the, remember the two domain? Another thing, dear ones, everything, if, here, read, if you want to read Invading Babylon, just about everything is about geography. This is 180 degrees, total opposite of what I was teaching a few weeks ago. And I admit, they have millions of followers, I'm just a nobody. But it doesn't matter because what does the Bible say? Is spiritual reality about geography? I showed verse after verse, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. They are in darkness. The, the Holy Spirit is poured out also on all flesh. So coexisting geographically around the whole planet Earth, focus of redemption and atonement. I'm not going to comment about extraterrestrials. I don't know about that. But this is where it happened. It's where Messiah came. The whole world has two domains. Darkness and light. The truth and the lie. And life and death. And I had a slide with that. It showed scripture after scripture describing both. Conversion involves not a change of geography, but a change of kingdom. Wherever you are in the world, when you believe the gospel, you go from death to life, darkness to light, the lie to the truth. That is true of every convert anywhere, anytime. If you have an older, uh, one of the printouts, you'll, you'll see that slide on there. I was going to put that up today. And I said this, that would be true for a person who at some point had heard the gospel, who stuck in solitary confinement in some miserable prison in some third world place, isolated from anything that would ever have anything to do with the gospel, but had heard it at one time. That person in the depths of a prison in China, believing in Jesus Christ, isn't kept out by geography. These guys are absurd, and they won't go into the arena of public debate because if you want to debate them, they say you're negative and you're hurting us. We're just positive. But I want to know this. How did that person in China go from light, from darkness to light, death to life, the light of the truth, if they're in some horrible, wicked, dark dungeon? Because God's presence is everywhere. You don't have to wait somewhere for God to show up. You got to hear the gospel. The whole world is the arena in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. The whole world is the arena of the lie and darkness. And the two coexist throughout this age. And that when conversion happens, wherever 
and under one, whatever circumstances, as long as the true gospel is preached, the conversion happens. And there are so many examples of that. They want to look to recreate Pentecost, but Pentecost is the beginning to foreshadow that it's going to go to the whole world. But if you look at the Ethiopian eunuch, well, how about even before that, before Pentecost even, there's a foreshadow in Luke when, when these great things happen, when the uh, Gadara, the, the demoniac of Gadara, is delivered and healed by Jesus, chained up in a cemetery. There's a good example. Chained in a cemetery. The most demon, demonized, dark, horrible. Nobody dare go near him. The crazy man would kill him. Jesus heals him. Totally. The demons go down into the swine and the seed, two places they hated the most. The seas were the, the, the arena of the depths of darkness and the swine are utterly unclean and demonic. This guy's in his right mind. Now, what did Jesus do? Take him to a real kingdom? No, he, he wanted to follow Jesus. Said, no, stay there and tell the people what God, great things God did for you. Dear saints, God will use you. God will keep you. God isn't requiring you to get on an airplane to go somewhere so you can find the Holy Spirit. That wasn't necessary for the, kind of the Gerizines, although Pentecost happens later. But God will save anybody anywhere puts their faith in him. And there are many places in the world, far more populated than America, like China, where a few saints gather secretly lest they're killed. Do they have fellowship? Do you think that God, look at, uh, let me read the verse again. Commend you to the God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among those who are sanctified. Does that apply to some persecuted, beaten down, gathered group in China? Or in a Muslim country? Absolutely it does. What God provides works for anyone everywhere. It doesn't need money. It doesn't need power. And it doesn't need the, the, the courtyards of power in some civil government for it to produce the kingdom. The kingdom is God putting people into it. Yes, brother. Thief on the cross. Didn't do anything. You know, just believe. Uh, uh, Whenever I hear about the inheritance for years, I <laughs> think now all the time about no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard of the uh, uh, great things that God Amen. has prepared for those who believe. So we kind of think, oh, eternal life, that's hard to eternity. I mean, that's kind of... You know, hard to grasp that. And then we think, uh, oh, look how we, we think in our minds, look how great this is going to be, that's going to be. But uh, encouraging the fact that we can't even imagine. So the things that he's prepared for yeah. us, it's, it's just uh, beyond. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Remember when someone was, uh, they were trying to trip up Jesus and they said this guy had all these different wives? had died and uh, which one will be his wife in the kingdom or any, however they ask the question and what did he say you don't you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God 
And the answer was, they will not be marriage. Now, we have to absorb that teaching too. We're, we're all somewhat guilty easily of not understanding that. If you look at evangelical funerals, you'll see that it's not understood. And, and, and then real quick, Bob, um, that Glenn Beck, when he- Oh yeah, did, Glenn, he's a yeah, Mormon. When he did the covenant thing, um, I called you that he did it. He did, did it last Friday. Yeah, you called me. And, and Eric, I, I, I talked to you. You listened to it with your, uh, with your dad. You, you happened to be in the car. But anyway, he did it last Friday. And what he did, I don't know if anybody else heard it, but he, he had everybody repeat what he said on the air. He's got millions of people that listen to him, whether mm -hmm. on his Blaze Network, okay. on the radio, whatever. So he's having everybody make promises, promises. Pro I promise to do this. I promise to do that. This, that, the other thing. Well, number one, we learned a long time ago from you guys, you make a promise to God, you're failing. Okay, so don't ever make a promise Believe to God. Believe his promises. <laughs> and God, it was only a one-way deal. See, we were, Beck and the people that believed what he was saying, it, it was a, a one-way covenant and no covenant. Initiated by man. Initiated by man. Well, that's exactly doomed what, for failure. That's what Rick Warren did. There you go. And I, I, I mentioned that in, in the book that I wrote about Warren. Listen, how can a Mormon with a different God be, obligate God to a covenant? He has a different God. If you think the Mormon God is the God of the Bible, you haven't studied your world religions. Their Jesus is half-brother of Satan. God lives on a planet, I think, called Kolob, and he's a guy who looks like us. Go ahead, Britt. Yeah, the, the Christianity that I grew up with was all about that making a commitment to God. I mean, I was saved, or so I thought, at five years old because I accepted Jesus. It was my commitment to Jesus. It really didn't have much to do with repentance and faith. It had to do with wow. my ability to be sincere and to pledge my life to the Lord. And that's the religion I grew up with. It's a very radically different thing. It's Did subtle, it? but it's, it's different. Did it turn out to be for real? No, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean... You if you would have asked me a few years ago, why are you saved? Well, when I was five years old, I was very sincere, and I accepted Jesus Christ. Okay. My dad led me to the Lord. But that is salvation for the evangelical church in so many ways is my commitment to Jesus and my sincerity. Did you mean it? Oh, I really meant it. Did you really, really, really mean it? I really, really, really meant it. But the problem is God sees right through that. He sees my dirty heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. So was I really saved? I don't know. Okay, but, that's all right. That happens to a lot of people. But I know church. that I'm saved because of what Jesus has done for me. Well, his commitment to, to me. lost sinners. And, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Amen. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hallelujah. You know, the, the encouraging thing is that when we understand the promises of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the act of God to take care of us and carry us all the way to glory, carried by the comforter, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and what's the whole counsel of God. Dear ones, we need the whole counsel of God, not somebody cherry-picking out of context proof text to create their own version. 
That's just, that just bugs me. It would be like, a, I, I'm a teacher and a theologian, but if I'm not a musician, but if I was a very well-trained musician and you went to the concert and the piano was totally out of tune, it would drive you nuts. No, um, the point is, when I hear bad theology, it drives me nuts. Go ahead. Back there for the Luann. I just kind of wanted to follow up a little bit on your two-domain theology with, you know, we are Good. in the truth and the lie. And we also know that the world is in the power of the evil one right now. And so when we talked about um, the NAR and, you know, when Republicans are in power, it seems like the NAR comes out of the woodwork and suddenly their voice is heard. But now we've got Biden, and so they're not heard as much, but we got Marxists going on, which is still both of them are in the category of the lie. And I'm not saying everyone, but you know, when the NAR has influence, it's the lie. When Marxism has influence, it's the lie. And as Christians, we just need to be able to understand that, that that's what's going on. And the only way to be different is to be in the Bible. That's a good thing. Thank you, Luann. In fact, that brings to mind something that we'll get to later in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to finish next week. I'm going to finish 1 Corinthians 9. There's three categories. The Jews, the Greeks, and the Church of God. Is that correct? What happens when you mention those two in, in sort of a Christianized political system? You have those who please the, the Greeks. If you want to read Romans 1. We're going to have something where everything goes. If you read Romans 1, you'll see the platform for one of the political parties. And then we have something that will please the Jews who take their scripture seriously, which would be the theonomy. We're going to have moral government. That's another name for it, moral government. Moral government theory of atonement. So we have something that's for the, for the Greeks, called Christian. That would be the pastrix that was saying God lied to Eve. Mention that one. Or there's something for people that are more law-oriented. We're going to be against things, which is good. I think that's what the government is supposed to do, according to Romans, for our good, for civil society. But the church is neither. The church is the church of God. And the teachings that are binding on us come from Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, and that our inheritance is provided by the Lord through his promises, and our fellowship is with one another as we are to be good citizens of this world in the sense of paying our taxes. And uh, I can agree to a certain degree that Christians, wherever they are, should be salt and light. I can agree with that. But that doesn't mean we need billions of dollars so we can make it all Christian. And then the primary fellowship we have as Christians is around those things that make us different in this world. The light rather than darkness, truth rather than lie, and life rather than death. Those were the three categories. There were many scriptures from different parts of the New Testament that had those same three categories. I have a slide for it if we ever have a working projector. Well, you saw it. I want to show it again. Uh, 
That's going to be true. See, if it only works in developed countries with enlightened leadership and prosperity, what kind of kingdom of God is that? And is that to say somebody in Iran who becomes a Christian isn't really part of the kingdom? It doesn't work that way. It's not geographical. It's not political. Yes. See, Bob, I was going to just mention is we're dealing with post-millennialism. In the last right. six months, I've really thought about what's the key issue behind post-millennialism. What's the core that we, if we get rid of it, it's all done. And it's, it's really preterism. Now, what's preterism? Yes. Preterism yes. is the belief that Jesus returned at least partially in 70 A.D., that's what preterism is. Now, why is that the key to post-millennialism? Well, read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 21 through 22. Jesus says, upon the world will come such tribulations such as never occurred nor ever will. What's the key core doctrine of post-millennialism? The world is going to get better. Matthew 24, 21 through 22 says it's going to get worse. Well, how can it get worse and get better at the same time in the same relationship? They have a contradiction. So they say Matthew 24, 21 through 22 isn't in the future, it's in 70 AD. So now the worst time period ever that's ever occurred is in 70 AD. So what I do online is I say, really, is 70 AD worse than what happened in World War II? When you lost 92% of every Jew who lived in Poland? You lost 6 million Jews between 1939 and 1945. Is that worse than losing 900,000 Jews in 70 AD? And by the way, the book of Revelation says a third of the ships are going to be destroyed. A third of the oceans are going to turn to blood. Where did Josephus note that that occurred in 70 AD? Well, of course it didn't. So the worst time period is still in the future. Therefore, post-millennialism is false. Why? Because things aren't going to get better. The battle in post-millennialism, in my opinion, is the battle over preterism. Once we defeat preterism, post-millennialism is shown to be a $3 bill. Yeah, you're doing a fantastic job of working at that, brother. Thank you. I appreciate you getting into that battle. Say, Bob, can you just, you're going to be writing an article where you're going to be refuting I, I started, the I started writing on the Great Commission in Matthew. I read four technical scholars. I marked up the Greek, analyzed the categories, and then the first part I go back to how Matthew sets up this throughout Matthew. Like Luke, these writers, these ancient Holy Spirit-inspired writers are good writers. And Matthew tells you what these things are going to be. And this is the capstone at the end as it comes to it. And so I, I'm going to cover that. I already have one section written. Discourses on mountains are important, for example which is the Great Commission is. And so who, who's a disciple? I looked, I ran it into Greek, in, just in Matthew. The term disciple is used 72 times in Matthew. And if Matthew didn't define the disciple, C. Peter Wagner didn't just from reading a text and taking it out of context. According to these guys, the disciples are geopolitical units or cultures. Now, I would challenge those guys, in fact, all of the dominionists, to prove that Matthew ever meant the term mathetes, disciple, to mean culture or geopolitical entity. And since he never did once, 
they are finding what they want to find by term, taking the term ethne, nation, they couldn't be translated nations, or Gentiles. Gentiles will be converted and added to the kingdom, not just the Jews. But that would be too mamby-pamby for the Dominionists. Go ahead. Um, Eric, could I ask you to contrast amillennialism and postmillennialism? Yes, please do. Good. Thank you. Great question. Yeah, amillennialism, ironically, they believe you're reigning now. And the debate between the amillennialists is whether Christians are reigning in heaven. The problem with that is what's the expectation in Revelation 5.10? They shall reign upon the earth. The next time the term reign is used in Revelation for Christians is in Revelation 20, verses 3 yeah. on, where it says they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, where is that going to be? Well, it's going to be on the earth. So the problem with that is if you say that, is the, so this is the amillennialists. There's a divide in amillennialism between those who believe that we're reigning on the earth now, which what do you do then when a Christian child is murdered, for example, by the transgendered individual some months ago? Well, that's not much of a reign. Is that the swords beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks? Well, of course not. So the other ones will say, well, no, we're only reigning in heaven. So that's the divide in amillennialism. Some think you're reigning now in heaven, or in some think that we're reigning on the earth now. But the point is, amillennialism, we are reigning now. The kingdom is now. Postmillennialism is you have to build it. And that's why amillennialists have to say they are Israel. Postmillennialism has to build Israel. Premillennialist, we say Christ is going to come to establish the kingdom of Israel. Let's have the same eschatology that the apostles did. The apostles in Acts 1-6 asked the question, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember, they had just been instructed by Jesus Christ for 40 days about the kingdom of God. That was the greatest eschatology course ever given to mankind. And what was the conclusion? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't correct them. And by the way, he's morally obligated to do so. Remember in John 14, he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, yeah, well, I would have told you. Well. He's morally obligated to ensure his apostles represent the truth. He doesn't say, hey, where did you guys get the goofy idea that the kingdom is coming to Israel? He says instead, no, you're not to know the times and the epics which are in my father's hands but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Exactly what you're saying, Bob. The gospel is to go out and create the citizenry one person at a time. Right, which, by the way, they think is miserable and pathetic. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly our failure. Yeah, exactly. To believe that when one person repents, someone's added to the kingdom, and the kingdom grows thereby. Yeah. The real kingdom is later when Christ the King is actually ruling. Now, what about the post-millennial? How would they explain this? Yeah, so they believe that they're going to create this kingdom, just as you've mentioned. and so, Through yeah. geopolitical exactly. activism and cultural changes. Yep, in fact, that book that you read, that Seven Mountain Mandate, yeah. they have to take over institutions, whether it's in government, whether it's in culture. Yeah, the, and, the, uh, there's like two that. different... They claim that they got this by revelation... They have many prophets and apostles, but in the preface of it, the, there were evidently, Warren Cunningham was one of them who originally got it, supposedly. And then another guy claimed that he got the same revelation separately, and they compared their set, list of seven. 
and uh, that they kind of put it into just one list of seven. And there was these seven spheres of influence that uh, is now Babylon. Now, here's the seven mountain mandate. Does it would have to do with, here it is. Here is uh, the list from Lauren Cunningham from YWAM. Church, family, education, government and law, media, arts, entertainment, sports, commerce, science, technology. Those were the seven. And the promises that are listed in the book are all taken, uh, there may be an exception, some are for, taken from Revelation when it's all really happened. They apply that to now. And some are taken out of the Old Testament, things that were given to Israel that won't be fulfilled until the future. But that all of these arenas of life will become aspects of the kingdom as we exert influence intellectually, economically, politically, spiritually. Luann. My question's kind of for Eric also, but just on the timeline of history, um, is preterism, is it a, you know, kind of like a Roman Catholic initiated? I, I mean, I'm thinking back to um, in the early 1900s, they tried this post-millennialism, you know, through abolition and different things, and then when World War I broke out, they knew that it was a farce. But uh, uh, preterism would have been before that, is that right? Yeah, uh, counter what happened in the Counter-Reformation to the Protestants, what happened is the Protestants were historists, so they, so think about when you're interpreting the book of Revelation, you have some choices. You can be a futurist. I'm a futurist. Bob's a futurist. We believe these things are going to occur from Revelation chapter 6 all the way to 22 in the future. The reformers were historicists. Mm -hmm. They believe these things were happening during the church age. Right. The problem with that is they had to make the Antichrist the pope. That's what the reformers kept doing. It's not some future man of lawlessness that's going to set himself in the temple. It was always the pope. So the Catholic Church and their counter-reformation, a bunch of Jesuit scholars said, well, hey, let's get rid of this reformation doctrine that our pope is the Antichrist. Let's place this in 70 AD. So it's not happening in the church age. It already happened in 70 AD. Therefore, we get our pope off the hook for being the Antichrist. That's really where I believe that it came about. So but, it's but ironic. They, they both believed in geographical territory. Exactly. And That's so exactly. the wars about that time, both before and after the Reformation, that these massive wars in Europe to determine which version of the kingdom was going to be over which country. For example, my ancestors were Huguenots who were Protestants in France. France lost to Rome and, were, and the Protestants were driven out. So they couldn't be a part of Rome's kingdom who would establish who the king's going to be over France. They went to the Netherlands. So consequently, my dad, did, when he was alive, did a whole bunch of family tree research and found this material. And then in the Netherlands, they were there for 300 years. It eventually came over to America. But in the Netherlands, they had a re Dutch Reformed version of the kingdom. And they had, you know, the war resulted in dividing Europe into Lutheran nations, 
Catholic nations and Calvinist Reformed nations. Now, what Eric and I are saying is that none of that is actually the kingdom of God. All of that is part of providence. Providence contains good and evil. The Bible says that God draws out the boundaries of the nations, but he uses what happens in history. And providence is all-encompassing, and I've showed you that many times, including the many statements about all things in Romans 8, for example. So what we're saying is, however, in God's providence, these boundaries are drawn out, and wherever people may be, we definitely want to be salt and light. I don't vote for people who want all this evil. However, if you're converted in one of those places, you're still part of the kingdom. How do you not be part of the kingdom when you're converted? Because you're living in the wrong country. Or why would you be considered a failure? Because you're living in the wrong country. Or you didn't take all the money and turn it into kingdom uses. I got to finish on two positive notes here. First, turn with me to Ephesians 5.5. 5. I got to get this out there. Ephesians 5.5. 5. All right, are you there? Ephesians 5.5? 5, 5? I'll read it. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is, a, is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So this inheritance which belongs to those who are in Christ, according to Ephesians 1.14, is not compatible with the wickedness of the world. And so that pastrix who was saying God lied to Eve, I should play some of that audio for you, uh, in order to promote abortion, we can conclude does not have an inheritance. Because God cannot lie, and God doesn't promote abortion or murder. That came from Cain. <laughs> All right. So the kingdoms coexist, kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light coexist. That terminology is found in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We're transferred, still on the same planet, still living in the same house usually, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. It doesn't require me running some political entity to be part of the kingdom. It's so obvious. Why, it's just, I still have some hair, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I have any ink left in my marking pen, but... Okay, 1 Peter 1.4. 1, 1 Peter 1.4, we want to turn there and we'll close on that. We've got a minute. 1 Peter 1.4. And this, dear ones, we can count on. 1 Peter 1, 4. Let me read it. Get time to find it. Okay. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. <laughs> Look at that again. Imperishable undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Next Sunday, I'll preach on uh, the perishable or imperishable crown that we're running to obtain. 
I'll give you a preview. The crown they had at the Isthmian Games in Corinth was made out of dried celery. I'd call that perishable. <laughs> but even if it was gold, it would still be considered perishable. Now, the point is, dear ones, we have a gospel of the kingdom that means you become a citizen under the king, not someone who decides the fate of the nations of the world through our political and economic activity. That's, the, I believe, is very biblical. And so being part of the church of God, we are certainly to be exemplary citizens by God's grace, but we're not losing our status as kingdom people if we're not trying to take over the seven mountains. Seven, yeah. It couldn't be six mountains. That's the number of man. Yeah, seven. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Pastor Eric as he brings the word of God to us today. May our hearts be open to learn what you've said from your word as we carefully examine the scriptures. And we thank you, Lord, that today also we're remembering your death until you come, reminding, being reminded of what you've done for us and our eternal hope, and are looking forward to the marriage supper of, of your son, the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, dear saints. Sure.